All right, good morning, church. Have a seat. Thanks for being here with us today. And if you're a visitor, just want to welcome you. I did want to just add one thing to the announcements. Um, if you're visiting with us today, we are a church plant, which means we're a church that hasn't been here very long. We're a family of missionary disciples that desires to create a movement of making disciples, mobilizing missionaries, and multiplying churches to the glory of God. And so uh, if you'd like to learn more about that, if you're a visitor here today, we have a little book that tells you just a little bit about who we are and what we care about. And in here is a connection card. Um, if you provide this basic information on this card, we're not going to sell it to telemarketers. I'm not going to put you on an annoying call list. But I would love to maybe reach out and just offer to have a cup of coffee with you, learn more about you, and, and tell you more about who we are. So uh, we have that. So make sure you get that information before you leave today. This morning, we are starting a new sermon series here at Rooted. We like to walk book by verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so we're going to be spending this month in the book of Jonah. So today we're going to be in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Jonah is a short book that is ultimately a part of a collection of books called the Minor Prophets. These books are called the Minor Prophets only because uh, they're pretty short. Some of these prophets used powerful poetry, such as Habakkuk and Zephaniah. Others used culturally relevant events, such as Joel, in order to share their message. And others, like Zechariah, used just visions of grandeur. Jonah, however, is a little bit more, it's, a little, it's unique out of the minor prophets because Jonah used a story and specifically he told his story. He tells his story to us in order to teach us something about who God is and what he's doing. Jonah, though, is a story within a much greater story, and that being God's redemptive story, God's plan for redeeming and rescuing his people. You and I also have a story within the greater story of God. And like Jonah, God has called us to be used by him as he seeks to redeem the city and the neighborhoods and the places where he's put us. So my prayer for this sermon series, and I'm going to pray here in just a moment, is that this sermon series, the book of Jonah, will challenge us and motivate us as to why we love our neighbors and why, and just to clarify God's call in our life. So if you would, um, I'd like to just take a moment as we start this series and pray for those very things. Lord, thank you for your abundant goodness. Your mercy is more. It's abundantly more. Lord, we are, our lives are filled with uh, shortcomings and, and doubts and struggles and questions. Yet in the midst of that, your mercy is more day after day after day. Lord, thank you for your word and stories like that of Jonah that testify to the truth of your mercy being more. Your mercy is more than our doubts. And, uh, Lord, like Jonah, uh, each of us uh, carry doubts. We, we struggle to trust you. And Lord, I pray that through your word, you might convict us of such, and you might empower us and encourage us with the truth of who you are, that we might walk faithfully and go boldly into the places that you would call us to go. And Lord, I, there are many in this city, there are many in this neighborhood, there are many in our communities that are yours, and they just don't know it yet. And Lord, I pray that you might, in your grace, use us to take the gospel forward to those places. I ask these things in your good name. Amen. So I'm going to read Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We're going to talk about Jonah's running from God. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So here in verse 1, we see something unique. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So this is not an uncommon way to start a letter by a prophet. That ultimately, prophets were those whom God spoke to, ultimately as a vessel through which they spoke to Israel, their people. And so Jonah has been given this word in order to go forward on this mission God has called him to. Now, in this case, the word of the Lord to Jonah was no easy word to take. And some of that gap, there's a little bit of of gap here as far as filling that in, so I'm going to fill that in for you. God tells Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. At this time, that message to Jonah had to be a shocking one. God calls Jonah, a Hebrew prophet, to leave Israel and to go to a Gentile city. Up until this point in history, God's prophets had only been sent to God's people. Yet, God is calling Jonah to go to the wicked city of Nineveh. At this time, this was unprecedented. This was a, just a, a, this was a death sentence, an impossible call. You see, Nineveh was no ordinary Gentile city. Not only was it a city of those who were hostile to God and were not believers, but Nineveh, being the capital of the Assyrian Empire, was amongst the most wicked cities our world has ever seen. Assyrian kings were known for boasting of leveling cities and littering plains with corpses. Decapitation, torture, and dismembering were regular tactics used upon their enemies. The Assyrians were known to cut off the legs, both legs of their enemy, but only one arm, so that they might mockingly shake their hand as they died. Their cruelty was unmatched. Nineveh was a terrorist nation, and that was well known. And so when it says here, go to that great city, the term great city is referring only to the power and influence that, the Nineveh, that Nineveh had. It wasn't that Nineveh was a great moral city, but they had accumulated a great deal of power. During the lifetime of Jonah, they were continually threatening the Jewish kingdom, and eventually they invaded and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital, Samaria. God's call to Jonah, however, indicates that Nineveh, nonetheless, was a city that the Lord cared for. He was prepared to pour out his wrath upon Nineveh, but the call for Jonah to go and warn them could only mean that there might be an opportunity for his wrath to be withheld. This was a pill, as you'll see over the next four weeks, that Jonah just could not swallow. You see, Jonah knew his Lord. He knew the abundant grace of the Lord. And when God calls him to go to Nineveh, not only does, is that an impossible mission, but we're going to see that something hardened in Jonah's hearts because they didn't deserve mercy. Then Jonah couldn't understand what God must be thinking and even giving them an opportunity. Jonah desired justice and felt he was the right one to determine who would, re- would receive such justice. And so this is Jonah's response. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go away with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. God calls Jonah to go in a direction and he literally makes a conscious choice to flee in the exact 
opposite direction. Nineveh was to the east, and Tarshish was as far to the west as the known world was discovered in this time. He literally made a decision to run in the opposite direction as far as possible from what God had called him to. God called Jonah to a purpose, and he sought out to run as far away from that purpose as he possibly could. And that obviously leads us to the question of why. Why would Jonah do such a thing? In the weeks ahead, we'll get very specific in talking about very specifically what what Jonah's problem was and why he wouldn't do this. But in general, Jonah's why for not obeying the Lord was the same as Eve, was the same as we still struggle with it today. His struggle was rooted in a failure to trust the Lord. Like Eve, like Jonah, we come to seasons where God's call just feels too weighty and we fail to trust that what he has called us to is right and good. The call God has given Jonah made zero sense in any fathomable way. Theologically, it did not make sense. The entire book of Nahum is written to prophesy that the Lord would destroy Nineveh. This was easy to accept. Like people in Jonah's day, believers, they had accepted that. Nineveh is wicked. God's going to destroy it. This was easy to accept given just the hatred they had built up for this wicked city as they watched and observed this cruelty. Surely the Lord would just follow through with his plan to punish these wicked people. So theologically, God's call makes no sense. Practically, God's call made no sense. Why in the world would the leaders of this wicked nation listen to Jonah? It's like if I just decided to set out tomorrow and go to the leaders of Al-Qaeda and tell them why they should change their ways and follow my Lord. What's going to happen to me is pretty evident. Not only am I not going to get in their midst, but I'm going to be dead long before that happens. Not only do they have no motivation to listen to Jonah, but they would certainly kill him. They would not just kill him, but they would make sure to make a public spectacle of the one who comes and publicly calls them to repentance. Surely his death would be a brutal combination of both mockery and torture, and he knew this. It wasn't just the fear of death. It was the fear of a death that was unimaginable. Bottom line, for Jonah, this call was a mistake. The chances of success were zero, and a brutal death was certain. God had got it wrong. His sovereignty had a glitch, and Jonah knew what was best, so he immediately took off in the other direction. It's easy to read this and to think, how foolish of Jonah. But yet, many of us can relate to Jonah, if we're honest. Certainly all of us could. Have you ever stopped and wondered, like, God, are, you must be wrong. This can't be. Maybe when you read his word and you feel conviction, God, can this, that, can't really mean what you, that can't mean what it says. You can't be actually calling us to that. You can't actually expect death to self. That can't be right. When you suffer loss, God, that, how, can that, how could that be? That can't be correct. When you suffer pain, Lord, did you you overlook something here? And ultimately, when your plans don't seem to be working out, the natural posture of our human heart is to believe God must be wrong or worse, 
unloving to me. Our minds are prone to make plans which fit in line with our tiny perspective of what seems best. We make our plans in life based off our vision for what we think would be the best life we could live. And unfortunately, we're prone to attach his goodness to our tiny plans. And so when God, when it turns out that our limited perspective and the tiny plan we had has a big shift in it, we question God's goodness. But the truth is, the God who lives outside of time sees the bigger picture. His plan is abundantly more than our plan. His plan is ultimately to redeem his people, and we're just a small part of that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son to live a perfect life and to die a brutal death so that there'd no longer be condemnation for those who are his. That's the plan of God, and we're just a piece in that in accordance with his perfect will. I'll confess to you, like, this applies to all the areas of struggle that we go through, but I'll share with you how I was convicted, even studying with this, about how this has played out in my life personally. As the pastor of a church plant, over the past couple of years, I've been in a similar situation on a few different occasions where I've sat with a believer who's kind of, they're either, re- they're, they, maybe they visited and they're wrestling with, like, do I want to be a part of a church plant? Or maybe they haven't been here and they're kind of struggling with that. And the conversation's always the same. It's like, it's usually rooted around comparing this opportunity down the street with an abundance of resources versus, am I really called to like sacrifice in this way because make no mistake to be a part of a church plant is a sacrifice and a call of the Lord many times instinctually my reaction to this has been to just like make a strong case we're like we're we're the same basically I mean yeah they have this uh, this this amazing thing but we kind of have that too it's more homey yeah it's easier to get connected when there's 1500 people but and we have a more intimate setting and I use words like this and what I'm doing is I become a car salesman like I can go from pastor to car salesman pretty quick in those moments and all of a sudden I have the equivalent of this family that's talking to me about this luxury SUV with all the perks and all all the luxury and it fits their whole family. And I'm over here with the the, equi- the car equivalent to a church plant is like a compact car. So I'm over here explaining why, well, this compact car is really going to, it's going to be just as comfortable. You, you have to crank the windows by hand, but I mean, they, they go down. We don't have AC currently, but we're really hoping somebody's going to step in soon and leave in that role. And I end up putting myself in this posture. What I'm doing is I'm trying to water down the cost of, of discipleship. And not that, in some of these cases, like, the thing that their heart's pulling them towards is where they need to be. Like, this isn't about big church versus little church, but it's about the, it is easy for me to immediately want to water down the truth that, yeah, sometimes God calls us to really hard things. And that the question for God's people is not what would be better for me or what would be more comfortable for me, but it's always, what's the Spirit calling me to? Where has the Lord put me? Where has he called me to be? And this was the thing that Jonah could not handle. You see, Jonah's posture was not, Lord, what would you have of me? It was self-preservation. What would be better for me? And when I, when I run into that situation, I, I'm, I'm, I'm continually I'm tempted to water that down. When the truth is, what my posture should be is you're right about a lot of those things. A lot of things are harder. Um, But God's good in the midst of that. And if he's called you to that, then praise be to God that we get to experience his blessing. 
You see, friends, it's not our job to water down the call of the disciple, especially not amongst those who claim to be followers of Christ. We have no need to do such a thing. It's our job to point people to Jesus and to faithfulness, not happiness and success. Success is outside of our ballpark. We don't even know what that means because we can't even see the full things that God's doing. God's doing 10,000 things in your life right now, and you're lucky if you get to see like six of them. So how could you possibly go about defining what success is? We're not called to happiness and success. We're called to follow Jesus and be faithful. The question is not what do you think would be better for you, but the question is what does God have for you? And where does he put you? And what is he calling you to? And what does it look like to be faithful in that? And this was the struggle of Jonah's heart. And it's the struggle of everyone's heart that seeks to follow Jesus. In verses 4 through 6, it says this. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So that the ship threatened to break up. When the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God, they hurled cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. In verse 4, it says, He hurled a wind upon the sea. That means just what you think it means. The term hurl literally means to toss. Like the Lord God Almighty just took a horrific storm and he just tossed it down upon Jonah, that he might turn back to God. It's important to put a disclaimer on this story, because it can be easy to bend that part of this story in our minds. What this doesn't mean is that every time something bad comes in our life, it's God hurling a storm on us, and like that it's a result of our sinfulness. That's, that's not what this is saying at all. The truth is, Jonah was called to suffer, period. If he had just faithfully said, yes, I'm going, there would have certainly been hardship. Okay, like the call to follow Jesus is not a call to a best life now. It's a call to death to self, much like Christ himself, like the whole book of Job, like each of the disciples whose faithfulness ended in their death, but then ultimately in their glory being with Christ. But in this case, God did hurl a storm into the life of one he loved in order to turn him back to him. It's the call of, uh, suffering is the call of all Christians at some point. And Jonah was definitely called to this. The storm, however, was the result of God's direct intervention in order to call back one of his who was seeking to evade out of lack of trust in the Father. For those of us who are in Christ, times of trial, times of suffering are always meaningful. And they are always meant for our good and God's glory. The Bible assures us of this. For those who are his, all things work in accordance with his will. There is no meaningless suffering for the believer. When we run from this, we'll never have peace, and a storm will always be waiting for us when we run from God. If a believer chooses to delight in sin, the loving intervention of God is displayed in his wrath. For those he loves, God will always break apart their boat and leave them in the sea where they will once again cry out to him. Always. If you belong to his and you are his child, the most loving thing he can do is turn you back. And sometimes the only way to do that 
is to crumble everything around that makes you think that you're sufficient. Jonah trusted in the boat. He didn't trust in Jesus. The boat, God's going to take that away. And he's going to leave Jonah in a place where Jonah's desperation is apparent to him. Our posture before the Lord is that of total dependence. And it's only in that posture that we find the peace and joy that we've been seeking. That in our death there is joy in Christ. And our weakness is abundance of his goodness. And a loving father will, will make that apparent to us. The, most, the, the worst thing that could happen in the life of Jonah is that he gets on the boat and gets to go about being his own God. A good father would not have such a thing. What's interesting is to compare the posture of Jonah to that of the very pagans that he was called to. Jonah was, act, he was actively running from God's call to go witness to a pagan nation. So what does God do in his infinite wisdom? He traps him on a boat full of pagans. These men were experienced sailors. They would not have been unprepared for the storm. Yet, this storm that God hurled upon them struck terror in their hearts. I, I don't know specifically. I can only imagine this storm came out of nowhere. These men had probably been planning this voyage. There was The weather was going to be good. And all of a sudden, this storm, the likes of which they had never seen, appears out of nowhere. And while these men took action, sensing the danger upon them, Jonah went down below and he fell asleep. Jonah certainly knew what was happening. I'm sure as soon as the clouds appeared and the lightning started to strike and the winds got crazy, Jonah knew. He knew what he was doing. His con- he, he knew. He was a man who walked with the Lord. And so he just went deeper down into the boat. He desired to, to numb himself knowing what was happening. So he, he went to sleep. He ran to the boat to get away from God. Then God shows up on the boat and he runs away again just deeper within the boat. This is how sin escalates. When a Christian is running from God, it typically, typically involves a process of isolating more and more. Not only isolating from God, but you begin to hide from God's very people. Because God speaks through them and God's seen through them. You can always see it, like inevitably, if somebody is living actively in sin that they are convicted of, they will almost always isolate more and more and more. You start off generally going in the other direction, but then God shows up through his word, maybe through a sermon preached, maybe it's by a word shared by a brother or sister, and then you just start retreating farther and farther into the ship. You can only hide so far inside the ship, though. That's when you do like Jonah and you seek to find a way to numb yourself, even within the ship. Jonah had hidden as far as he could possibly go. There was nowhere else he could run. So instead, he desires to run within himself and just go to sleep. Jonah took that deep nap of shame, being emotionally, physically exhausted. We can numb our pain with anything. We can do it with food. We can do it with sexual sin. We can do it with alcohol. We can distract ourselves with pursuit of money. Any sin of the flesh that brings relief will do. However, like Jonah, when the Christian takes this posture, it not only deepens our grief, but our posture of distrust in our Lord testifies as much to the world around us. The redeemed heart is no longer intended to care firstly for self, but is intended to care for others. 
as a reflection of the love that we've been shown in Christ. Sanctification means loving your neighbor as yourself. But hiding in the boat does the very opposite thing. You were meant to show the people of the world that God cares for them. But in the depths of the boat, you not only appear dismissive, but you make God seem the same. You see, Jonah Jonah had what they were looking for. They were trying to figure out what's going on. Jonah knew what was going on. But in his shame and his guilt and his isolation, he hid the very truth from those who needed it. And, the, <coughs> and then we see the response of a pagan leader. Verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This captain comes down to the vessel of the ship and sees this man asleep and he can't fathom what in the world is going on. How can you be sleeping? We're about to die. What are you doing? And these men had just been crying out to whatever God they could think of. And surely this man, he had mentioned he was running from God to them previously. So surely maybe his God will be the one that picks up the phone. I mean, these guys are calling all the gods. Whichever one will answer the phone, we'll talk to him. Let's just not die. And so he yells out the term, arise. Notice this is the same word that God used to call Jonah in verse 2. Arise and go to Nineveh. Now God says the same word again through a pagan ship captain. There's some implications I want to, I just want to pause and consider on this for a minute. This pagan ship captain is used by God to call Jonah out of his slumber and to awake him to the reality of his situation. When the world criticizes the people of God, some of it's evil. Sometimes it just comes from a place of hostility to the Lord. But oftentimes much of it can be true. And we should take notice and never be too good to take notice of that. Sometimes the truth of the sin in the church and the ways in which we need to be aware of the culture God's called us to comes from those who don't even know the Lord. And we should be willing to hear that and consider that. Often the decline of the local church is because we've lost sight of the very people that God has called us to. We've become out of touch with the hurts of those in our midst. The sailors were very aware of the storm. They reacted and they tried to do something, but the knowledge they needed, they didn't have. The one whom had, the one whom God had blessed with such knowledge was hiding in fear and was keeping it from these neighbors who desired it. These men who he had been put in this little boat neighborhood with in the moment. As we, as we wrap up this week, I, wanna consi- I want you to consider some things that we see, some things about the pagan sailors. Number one, they were very aware of the needs in the boat. They knew what needed to be done. They knew what they feared. They knew what, they, like they were very aware that there was a problem, even as the one who knew God was seeking to numb himself from that problem. Number two, they deeply desired resolution. They did not desire to perish. They desired to know what was true. Like right there in the midst of Jonah, he has the truth. They desired to know the truth. You just got to connect those dots. But Jonah and his fear and shame and not trusting in the Lord withheld that from them. Number three, they were very aware of the divine nature of their peril. They did not know the Lord God Almighty. They were confused. They worshipped false gods. They pleaded to those that they should not. But even these men knew this is the work of something bigger than us. 
We live in a culture that's full of that. Most non-Christians are spiritual in some sense because even the one whom Jesus has not rescued is able to see and tell this is something is holding this together. Something bigger than us is in our midst. Most people are very aware of that. Now, the call of the gospel is offensive, so that seems like a bad option. Let's get one of those other gods and call them. I get that. But for many That natural posture of their heart is the place where we come and we share the truth of the gospel. We share the truth of the gospel who not only, who who holds the storm in his very hands and who it subsides at his very word. They were, number four, like they were open to God. The problem was they were open to any God, just whichever God was brought to them in the moment. God tends to, God's able to reveal the truth of who the Lord God Almighty is. We have that knowledge. Because number five, they desired truth and they were seeking it anywhere. We're going to continue to talk. Like The story of Jonah is broke up into a couple parts. You've got Jonah and the pagans on the boat, but ultimately it's going to lead towards Jonah and the pagans on the city. The struggle of Jonah's is going to continue throughout this book. But I would just challenge you today to consider the very people that God's put in your midst. Who are the sailors? Where, what is the boat that God has put you in? And what would it look like to be faithful in taking the good news to those places? As we end the book of Jonah... We're going to spend uh, the book of we're going to spend the month of March uh, doing a sermon series that'll include some other Old Testament books called Who's Your One, and the idea of that is that one of the premises is going to be challenging us to consider who God's placed in our life that we can take the good news of the gospel to. I want to ask you to prayerfully consider some questions over this next week. And I mean literally, would you take time to pray regarding these questions? I'm going to post these on our Facebook page. And then uh, if you take part in one of our family groups this week, we're going to spend just a little bit of time discussing these questions, praying over them together. Question number one, where has God called you to go with the good news of the gospel? Perhaps it's a place where he's already placed you, like a neighborhood or a workplace. Or perhaps there's a people that he's given you a heart for, and you've kind of held back leaning into that. Second question, what would it look like for you to trust him and to take the good news to those people? Maybe you would have to change your schedule. Maybe you'd have to quit a hobby. Maybe your lifestyle would have to change in order to put you in that place. Maybe you'd have to move to another part of town. I don't know. But if you can answer question number one, who has God called you to go to with the good news of the gospel, what would it look like to trust him and to do that? Maybe it means going to a faraway land, but oftentimes it simply means finally being willing to take that step, you know, those 12 steps next door. Question number three, what are the immediate needs, fears, of the people that God has already placed you in a boat with. God's likely put you in a workplace. He's put you in a neighborhood. He's put you on a street with a group of people. And many of those people have a lot of the same characteristics as these sailors. I just encourage you to think about what is it that they fear? What concerns them? What hurts them? What are they anxious about on social media? Consider what truth is being provided to them by the world. 
Which gods, what gods are they calling today in order to get the answer to their questions? And number four, are you currently hiding in the boat or numbing yourself in order to escape the guilt of avoiding God's call? Because of the good news of the gospel, that question is not a question meant to lead us to shame. It's a call, a question meant to lead us to repentance. Man, maybe, maybe that's just where you're at right now. Maybe you've, you've kind of felt, maybe you've even kind of felt the storm. Maybe you've just been wrestling with some of that guilt because you know, man, that God has given you a heart for a people. He's, he has called you, he's prompted you, and you're kind of running from that. Or maybe you've never really heard that call. You've never really considered it because you, you, unlike Jonah, you didn't even wait to get the call from the Lord. You just took off beforehand. Man, my prayer is that God, that we would be a people who repent of such things and seek to move forward trusting God faithfully, taking the good news of the gospel because to the ends of the world. Because the good news of the gospel is Jonah was one whom God called to go to a wicked place to share the good news. Jesus. Jesus was like, the good news is the truth that there would be a better Jonah. That Jesus was the better Jonah who was called to go to a faraway land and take the good news to an equally wicked people. Yet he was the better Jonah because he did it. And he did it faithfully and he did it abundantly so that not only those whom Jonah was sent to, but also all those who would ever live would have redemption in Christ. Jesus is the perfect Jonah. And so we have even a better news than Jonah did that we take forth. We reflect Jesus. Jesus, God stepped out of heaven. He moved into the neighborhood. He put on flesh. He came and dwelt among us. That we, he, he shared in our hurts. He shared in our joys and saw, brought the truth to those that God would redeem. In the same way, we reflect him. We reflect Jesus, not Jonah, and that we leave our comfort zone. We go into the neighborhood. We live amongst those who need the truth of God's word, seeking to testify to that in the way that we live and in the words that we share. And when we do that, the very, the very hope for our church goes forward. God creates a movement. He makes disciples. He mobilizes missionaries. And he multiplies churches to the glory of God. And that's our prayer this morning. And, and so I just ask you to consider these questions. Maybe consider them today and just prayerfully consider them throughout this week. Would you pray with me this morning?